0: Will be uh, the sermon will be from Second Thessalonians three. So let's read uh, the two texts together. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are, lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man will be condemned according to his wisdom, but he who is of a... Per- commended, excuse me, not condemned... A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. Better is the one who is slighted, but has a servant, than he who honors himself, but lacks bread. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding." The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. He who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness, deceit. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. The truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. Flying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Amen. Now for 2 Thessalonians 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but, we, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen and amen. Grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Paul gives the Thessalonian Christians a blueprint, a blueprint. Children, maybe you've seen blueprints or maps before or instructions. Maybe you've gotten a new toy recently and there were instructions on how to put it together. Or you see dad receive yet another piece of furniture from mom that comes in a box and he gets out the book to figure out how to do it, only after first trying to do it without the instructions. But Paul gives the Thessalonian Christians, he gives them a blueprint. He gives them an instruction manual, as it were, and it really contains two things in this particular chapter. Uh, The first is a way, not the way, but a way to pray against evil. And the second is a way to live among disobedient Brethren. So the first is a way to pray against evil, and Paul seems to root this outside of the church because he calls them those who uh, do not have faith. But then when he speaks about what they are to do in their own context, he says, uh, as you saw later in the chapter, not to regard these uh, disobedient ones as enemies, but to admonish them as brothers. So the first thing, praying against evil. Note that this is a way, not the way, right? And what I, the reason I say that is because there are plenty of other passages in Scripture that show things like the psalmist, when he is reflecting on the evils around him, and sometimes he calls on the Lord to strike them down. Right? Other times, like you see in here, they call for a certain type of deliverance and, and free running of the Word of God, But Paul's instruction to them is for them to pray for him and his companions. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 1, you see Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, right? So those three are probably the ones he has in mind when he says, pray for us. He says, pray for us and for our deliverance. But he first talks about praying for the ministry of the word, Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, were laboring in the word of God. And as they do that, they are surrounded by situations and by uh, men lacking faith that they needed deliverance from. Paul desires deliverance from unreasonable and wicked men. Note those two words, unreasonable and wicked men. This gives us a a barometer or a scale, as it were, or two sample words of how to view those who prevent the word of God from having free course. I love the way it's worded. It says that the word of the Lord may have free course. Now, this is not a political manual, but this principle can be applied to National leaders, nonetheless, when they work against the ministry of God's word, they are being unreasonable and wicked. This can be experienced in the home as well, with a spouse or with a child who despises the Lord and his word. It can be experienced in personal evangelism, when you seek to do the work of sharing the gospel, trying to lead someone to Christ, whether it be in the workplace or in the neighborhood on a walk or whatever the case may be, if they reject the word of God, you can think of them as being unreasonable and wicked. And I would imagine that your encounters with people who reject the word of God, those words are very fair, right? Because we live in a culture that's kind of been burned over a burned-over district, as it were, that Christianity has basically come through and it's no longer having the influence that it once was, most people I encounter fall under the unreasonable category. Right? They just don't care to be reasoned with when you talk with them about the Scriptures. But there are those, and I would imagine we're going to run into even more and more as time progresses and things trend downward, there are those who wickedly reject the Word of God. Where they blaspheme the name of God when you talk to them or reject Christianity in a outright wicked way. Now, Paul would have them and he would have us by the Holy Spirit not to grow overly weary in situations like this, but to know that the Lord is faithful, even though men may surround us being unreasonable and wicked, suppressing the word of the Lord from having free course, even though they are lacking in faith, God is faithful. Faithful. The Lord is faithful. Know that, he says. He will establish his people. He will keep his people from these evil men, by implication, evil women who work against the word and prevent it from running free in their own lives and in the lives of others. Paul says to pray that these things might be so, and then he gives them And then gives us, by implication, the certainty that they will be so. And this is simply how prayer works. God very often tells us what to pray and then promises to fulfill that prayer. The Lord's Prayer is full of things that we are required to ask for. But in other places, we're promised that those things will happen. Right? That's just how prayer works. And as this is done, the Lord will, as Paul says, direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Both of those phrases are very profound. The way that uh, the scriptures are framed very often uh, can fill your mind with certain images. In verse 5, the Lord directing your hearts into the love of God. Think of the love of God as a place that God directs you into, just to fill your mind with that image, and into the patience of Jesus Christ, right? Both of those as places, as it were. The King James says the patient waiting for Christ. That's one way to take it. The patience of Christ carries a different different tone to it, doesn't it, right? That God would direct our hearts uh, in His love, and into the patience of Christ. I, I think uh, I might prefer the patience of Christ, though the patient waiting for Christ is, is fine as well. But the patience of Christ reminds you of how patient Christ is with those who disobey. Right? And that would especially be needed in a context where Paul is addressing them here as they lived among brethren that were obviously rejecting the word of God, and Paul himself living among those who rejected the word of God. Prayer is not the only thing that we have in this world to work against unreasonable and wicked men. It's not the only tool that God gives us. It is a tool. God never commands us to simply let go and let God. He does command us to let him and to let go in a sense, but it's never just that. Different stations in life enable us to perform different actions for the purpose of spreading the truths of Christianity, whether that be as a husband, a a father, a a wife, a mother, a grandparent, a, a civil leader, a pastor, whatever the case may be, God gives us these different places so that we can see to it that his word has free course wherever we are. And for that work, and for it to be established and promoted, prayer is absolutely the starting point and foundation for all Christians. However, we know, as the rest of this chapter tells us, it's not the only thing that we are commanded and or permitted to do. Paul finishes telling them how they, as a church, are to deal with his difficulties, right? So that's kind of what the first Uh, five verses are about how the church is to think about Paul's difficulty and how they should respond to it, they should pray. And then the second thing is he instructs them on how to deal with some of their own difficulties in their own congregation. The first thing he says in verse 6 is to withdraw from every brother, not some, withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. There's no qualification here about what place this brother might be in within the church. And the reason I point that out is because I think we have a proof text for something like church separation, where churches leave denominations. I think we have a proof text here for something like the Reformation or even what people call the Great Schism that took place long before the Reformation. There is a time for division. But don't overlook, Paul is calling for action. Prayer, yes, and action. Not one or the other. This separation that he commends here is a separation even from brothers. Separation even from brothers can be biblically necessary while also not changing the fact that they are brothers still. The issue that they must have been having was something like those uh, people, maybe they were living off the church without working, verses 8 to 10, for we know in various places how the church is to provide for its own, or at least they're they're types of people who are expecting to be provided for in general without working, whether they are um, uh, men laboring in the church like preachers and whatnot, Right, that's that's what he, I think. That's primarily what he's talking about. That there were men uh, laboring among them who did not work day and night like Paul, but expected to be uh, compensated as if they were. But what the the basic principle is here is you have someone who is violating the sixth commandment. Initially, remember, "Thou shalt not kill" also commands. Uh, by implication, thou shalt provide or thou shalt promote life. Right? They're not providing for whoever they have, even if it is their self. That's the first thing they're violating. And then if they expect to be provided for after violating that, then they are violating the Eighth Commandment and seeking to steal. And maybe Paul believes that they've grown weary in their well-doing, right? That they've grown weary in doing what God had called them. I think that this word Uh, in verse 13, you brethren, be not weary in well-doing, is as much to those who are um, hard-headed and disobedient as it is to those who were dealing with them. Because it is easy to grow weary in well-doing, and it can lead us all kind of places if we do grow weary. The Bible warns us of this multiple times. And this is part of the reason that the Lord shores up for us. He surrounds us again and again the need to persevere. There's another action called for, and it's very similar to the former uh, that we saw in verse 6, and it it probably is basically the same. If you want to call it that, that's fine. Um, But the action that he calls for is in verse 14. It's noting, or as is becoming a popular term, noticing. Noticing. Yes, you can argue it's the same action, verses six and fourteen, that's fine. But note the added emphasis that Paul provides in verse sixteen. I mean verse fourteen. He says, Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now this sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians five, doesn't it? It has a bit of a different flavor, but the same idea is in 1 Corinthians 5, where there is the man who was uh, reported as fornicating with his father's wife. So, with either his actual mother or with his uh, stepmother or another wife of his father. Maybe his father was uh, polygamous, whatever uh, the case may be. It's hard to say specifically. But Paul says about this man that, uh, and you know, this is one of the, the church discipline proof text, but he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Then he says later on, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, Et cetera, et cetera. So Paul addresses this in another place. But it seems like that in 1 Corinthians 5, the issue is more serious and that he treats it a little bit more firmly. Because this great sin that is undoubtedly being committed in 2 Thessalonians 3, it is striking that Paul says, "...even in your separation from them..." not to simply regard them as disobedient, but to continue regarding them as a brother, right? And that's a hard line to walk. In the midst of trying to carry out these difficult affairs, we will most certainly need what Paul commends to the Christians in verse 16, that the Lord of peace himself will give peace. We will need him to be with us for these matters are difficult. Noticing takes enough conviction Right? And I don't know if you've begun to have conversations with people uh, yet um, about things that you simply notice that are wrong. But there are some things that you just can't say. Right? How dare you say that? You point out an error in the world, an error in the church, an error in someone's life. and <gasps> right? It's not that way with everything, but there are certain things that it is not okay to simply notice. But Paul says, especially in the church, we must notice, to make note of them, he says in verse 14, which could also be translated to signify that man by an epistle, to mark him, as it were. Noticing, again, it takes enough conviction, but action based on noticing is another matter. You see, it is not unchristian to act in this way. It is not unchristian. Otherwise, Paul would not have by the Holy Spirit written it to us. Another passage that might come to mind is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, where another uh, church discipline style passage, but that's arguably what Paul is at least approaching. But in Matthew 18, um, it says, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So one man notices and he lets other men know. They notice as well and they go to confront them. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, listen to this, let him be to you as a heathen and a publican, or a tax collector. So similar ideas, but even more serious in Matthew 18, the logical conclusion. Now, maybe you could argue that the third step of Matthew 18 is a step removed from what Paul is saying in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, because probably he's hopeful that they will be recovered. There's no contradiction there, but they are, those are three passages that are addressing this Matter Similarly, evidently what Paul is dealing with is a matter not requiring what Christ calls for, yet perhaps we will call this the step before the step of formal church discipline. Either way, we could call this another term that's uh, not popular to say, and uh, Christians are very often rebuked for it, shunning. It is a form of Christian shunning, Right? Don't think of any sinful ways of shunning. That's not the point. But Paul calls on us to depart from, to not have company with certain folks. There are those we're to have no dealings with. And yet, if the opportunity presents itself, we are to admonish them as a brother, he says, rather than an enemy. And as we consider this work, I would draw you back to verse 5, that the Lord would direct our hearts into his own love, and into the patience or the patient waiting of Christ. Because if you've ever, ever confronted someone about their sin, you know that you need a tremendous helping of the love of God to bear with them and a tremendous helping of the patience of Jesus Christ. My prayer and hope is that God would grant that to us and that we would not be ashamed of noticing. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven.